another, pray for one another that you be made that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. We should not take praying for one another lightly. As we've been in the one another passages, we concluded with the idea that we should pray for one another. It's our introduction also to our new prayer meeting on Wednesday nights and also prayer as we consider it on uh, the evening, in the evenings on the Lord's Prayer. This morning, we have a passage that fits in with all of that in the providence of God as we continue in our study of the book of, of Matthew. Let me first give you an overview of these verses that were just read, and then we are going to focus on a particular aspect. So the overview is Jesus went out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to pray with him. Verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus submissively prays to the Father, expressing a request not to have to go to the cross. Verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus then returns to the disciples and once again exhorts them to pray. Verses 40 and 41. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus then prays again in verse 42. After praying the second time, Jesus returns to Peter, James, and John and finds them sleeping in verse 43. Jesus then prays a third time in verse 44. Then Jesus comes to the disciples a third time and informs them that the time of his betrayal has come. Verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There is so much in this particular passage uh, to really do it justice. We'd have to do a series of a few weeks. And so this morning, I'm going to limit myself to focusing our attention on Jesus' asking Peter, James, and John to pray with him and for him. I'm going to make some observations that we learn about prayer from Jesus' request to have Peter, James, and John to pray with him and for him. First, in asking his disciples to pray for him, Jesus makes himself vulnerable to the disciples. Jesus was becoming sad and anxious prior to the cross. Notice verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. NES translates that grieved 
and distressed. All of those are good words. Sad, sorrowful, troubled, grieved, distressed. It speaks of great emotional anguish that Jesus was suffering. But Jesus doesn't just suffer quietly. Jesus doesn't try to hide his intense emotional and spiritual ordeal that he's going through. But he opens himself up to the disciples in an incredibly plain fashion. Notice verse 38. Jesus is going to share his weakness with the disciples. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. In verse 37, it says he began to be sorrowful. Then in verse 38, he says to the disciples, my soul is very sorrowful. We get a picture of these sorrows coming in as waves that are beating against the soul of Jesus. The word for very sorrowful is actually a compound word. It's, it's the word for sorrow with um, a preposition on the front of it, which means upon. So a literal translation would be this, of sorrow upon sorrow. Jesus is experiencing sorrow upon sorrow. Jesus is experiencing a heap of sorrows, if you will, a truckload of sorrows. We need to realize that there were many, many reasons for Jesus to be sorrowful as he thought about going to the cross. There were many contributing factors to Jesus' sorrow. He was dying innocently for something that he had not done. He was dying shamefully. And according to the book of Hebrews, he despised that shame. The one that was worthy of all glory and honor and majesty, he was dying shamefully. He was being betrayed by one of his own. Unless you think that that didn't have any impact upon Jesus, John 13, 21 says this. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. John says he was troubled in his spirit and said, truly, I tell you that it's going to be one of you that is going to betray me. That was sorrowful for Jesus. Everyone was going to forsake him. That was sorrowful for Jesus. And then, of course, he's going to have to experience the ultimate sorrow, which is the separation of fellowship with his heavenly Father, and actually experience God's wrath poured out upon him. And he says, I have sorrow upon sorrow. How sorrowful was he? Notice verse 38. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Even to the point of death. These are the kinds of words that we can read over and and fail to dwell upon, and they don't sink in as they should. He is saying 
His sorrow was more than he was humanly able to bear. He is saying, I can't take this anymore. I cannot hold up under this. I'm about to die. I can't stand it, is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He was questioning whether or not he was going to be able to go on. Jesus was looking for a way out. He was praying to his father, saying, if it's possible, if there's any other alternative, if there's any other way in which mankind can be saved other than my going to this cross, may it be. And so that very point ought to teach us the necessity of receiving Jesus Christ as our Savior. There is no other way. To be saved, if there was, Jesus would never have to have died. He's looking for a way out. Jesus is not sinning and struggling under this great temptation, but he is expressing a need to his disciples. He stands in need of God's help if he's going to be able to shoulder this great duty. And Jesus is asking these disciples to share with him in seeking the Father's help. Watch with me. Watch with me. What must the disciples have thought Would they have been shocked to hear Jesus talk that way? I don't think there is any portion of Scripture that depicts Jesus' temperament and reaction in this way. Now, we do know in Isaiah 53 that he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We know that there's been a lot of hardship and difficulty in Jesus' life. But there's never been a point like this in which Jesus says, I can't stand this any longer. I'm about to die. I'm about to crumble. This is more than I can bear or handle. I ask you, are we shocked to hear Jesus talk that way? Spiritual, godly people are called to go through great trials and difficulties. We are not spared. And let us learn a lesson that if Jesus can feel that way, just imagine what the rest of us can go through. Just imagine our response to some of the trials and difficulties that we have. If we are not going to be shocked by Jesus' need, then we shouldn't be shocked by each other's needs. We shouldn't be amazed at the struggles that we may undertake. But Jesus was not concerned that the disciples would think less of him. Jesus didn't suffer from pride. 
Jesus didn't try to pretend that going to the cross was a cakewalk. He didn't try to present himself as having no trials, no struggles, no difficulty. He didn't struggle with the sin of pride. In Psalm chapter 42, three times the same verse is, is, is accounted. And it says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. This is a messianic psalm. And it gives us insight into the very struggle that Jesus is experiencing. And asking himself the question, why am I troubled by this? Why am I cast down? Hope in God. For I shall praise him again. My salvation. Jesus knows how it's going to turn out. There's no doubt. And Jesus has not lost his faith. But Jesus has gone through incredible turmoil and unrest. Jesus made himself vulnerable to his disciples because Jesus was more concerned that he do the Father's will than he was impressing the disciples. We too ought to be more concerned with seeking spiritual help and strength than we are in guarding our reputation. Now again, Jesus wasn't sinning. We looked at a verse last week said that we ought to be willing to confess our sins one to another. We ought to be willing to acknowledge our sin. Now we find out we ought to at least acknowledge our weaknesses, our struggles, our concerns to one another. Secondly, in asking his disciples to pray for him, Jesus is opening himself up for further disappointment. He is only adding to his sorrow. Jesus specifically asked them to pray for him, if you look at verse 38. For he says, remain here and watch with me. This word watch has with it the connotation to pray. That comes out more specifically in verse 41, where it says watch and pray. But those two ideas go together. That's how you watch, by praying. It's a particular kind of prayer. It's to be on guard that one does not succumb to temptation. Jesus realized that he was under great stress. And so he had to watch that he would not succumb to this temptation of not going to the cross. Peter, James, and John failed to pray for him. Verse 40. He came to his disciples, found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so could you, the you there is plural, not just Peter, but Peter, James, and John, could you not watch with me one hour? Couldn't you pray for me? Couldn't you come to my aid or assistance? And the answer is, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. But I have a question for you. And that is, why would Jesus seek the disciples' prayer on his behalf, knowing that they would fail him? Why did Jesus ask the disciples to pray for him? 
There are a number of answers. First, he is acting righteously. He is acting righteously. Jesus is acting appropriately. One of the ways that we resist temptation is to seek others to pray for us. He is responding in a righteous manner. He is doing the Father's will. He is seeking that which the Word of God teaches us to do in the midst of our trials and our temptations. We are to ask other people to pray for us, and that's what he does, because he is righteous. Because he is righteous. Sometimes people fail us, but that should not keep us from asking people to pray for us. Secondly, Jesus is providing the disciples with a great example in asking them to pray for him. An example as to how to overcome temptation in their own life. Look at verse 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus is providing for them an example. Here I am and I am struggling. How am I coping with this? I am praying. And I am asking you to pray for me. You have to remember that the disciples have been told by Jesus that they are all going to forsake him. And they all denied that they would. And Peter said, I'm willing to die with you. I will never forsake you. Jesus says, before the cock throws three times, you are going to deny me. Peter resisted that thought. And instead of praying, they slept. And instead of asking Jesus to pray for them, Jesus had already said to Peter, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. But instead of recognizing their own need and recognizing their own limitations, rather than acknowledging their own weaknesses, they thought they didn't have need for prayer or for Jesus praying for them. So Jesus provides this wonderful example of what we should do in overcoming our weaknesses. And then, thirdly, another reason that Jesus asked them to pray is because this too was part of the suffering that Jesus would have to overcome. This too was in the plan and will of the Father. Not only did Jesus not have anyone to stand with him, he didn't even have anyone to kneel with him. Before the soldiers come, before there is any threat, before there is any outside force to cause the disciples to fear and run before any of that occurs. They're not even ready and willing to be praying for him when he pours out this great need to them. This was just one more sorrow that was heaped upon the sorrows. This was one more sin that Jesus had to bear. Not his sin, 
their sin. For failure to pray for him was a sin. 1 Samuel 12, 23, Samuel says this, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Samuel says to Saul, I won't cease to pray for you because if I did, I'd be sinning against the Lord. This is what God has given me to do. This is my responsibility. I'm going to be praying for you, Saul. They were sinning in their apathy and indifference in failing to pray for Jesus, especially when he asked them to. You see, in our indifference, if we fail to pray for one another, it's actually sinful on our part. It's one more manifestation of our selfishness. And as I've been saying time and time again, at the heart and root of sin is selfishness. I ask you, Would we have prayed for Jesus had we been there? Had we been in that garden that night and Jesus would have poured out his heart to us, would we have prayed? I think not. I think not. How often is it that people ask us to pray and we don't? How many times do we read the exhortations and commands in the Word of God to pray? And we just read over them. And don't stop at that moment to kneel before God and to bring these prayer requests. How often do we fret and worry over things rather than pray about these things? However, These hurts and these sins and these failures should not keep us from asking others to pray for us and for us asking others to pray for us. Thirdly, in asking his disciples to pray for him, Jesus is demonstrating great humility and great respect for the disciples. Jesus asks These inner three, Peter, James, and John, they are the ones that are closest to Jesus. They have a number of unique opportunities. They're there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The rest of the disciples are not. They are the inner circle. They have some privileges that the other disciples do not have. Jesus does not bear his soul. To the other disciples. He bears his soul to Peter, James, and John. He asks his closest friends and disciples to pray for him, for he has no one else to ask. He has nowhere else to turn. Of all the people on the face of the earth, and for a fallen mankind that he is going to bear their sins upon the cross, there is not one person that Jesus can count on to pray for him. We're talking about turmoil. We're talking about unrest. 
We're talking about being at the point of saying, I don't know if I can go on anymore. And his last hope, humanly speaking, of someone that's going to be caring and concerned, it's going to be one of these three, and not one of them prays for Jesus. But here is a great lesson for us. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it said, Confess your faults to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. And then it says, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. How righteous do you have to be to pray? How righteous do you have to be to be effectual? How righteous do you have to be in order to intercede on someone else's behalf? Here we find that Jesus goes to these three disciples whom he knows are going to desert him, who he knows are going to forsake him, who he knows have not taken his admonitions seriously about their own weaknesses, who he knows have been arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom, who he knows are more interested in sleeping than they are in caring for Jesus. But Jesus goes to these three men and says, pray for me. They were righteous enough to have prayed and interceded for Jesus. Because that righteousness wasn't based on their own goodness. That righteousness wasn't based on their fidelity. That righteousness was not based on their commitment. That righteousness was not based on their steadfastness. That righteousness was based on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ when just the night before, he washed their feet. And he said, now you're clean. It is because Jesus is suffering and dying on their behalf that they can intercede for Jesus. The righteousness that we need is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And with that righteousness, we can intercede for one another. Not a righteousness in and of ourselves. Fourthly, in asking the disciples to pray for him, Jesus teaches us a great lesson concerning the prayer of a single righteous person. James 5.16, again, we saw last week, the effectual fervent prayer of a person accomplishes much. Here is Jesus dying and agonizing over this thought of going to the cross. And so what does he do? He prays. He prays three times, asking if it's possible for this cup to pass, but if not, he's going to do the will of the Father. Jesus is righteous. His struggles were not a sign of his unrighteousness, but rather his righteousness He responded to the temptation by not yielding to it. He responded to the temptation by saying, not what I want, but what you want. 
He was submissive to the will of God the Father. If this is what you have for me, I will do it. God sent an angel to support Jesus when the disciples did not. Turn with me to a parallel passage. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. Keep your finger here. We're coming back. Luke 22. Same account. Jesus praying in the garden. But we have this additional statement. Luke 22, starting at verse 41. And he, that is Jesus, I'm at Luke twenty-two forty-one. And he, that is Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. When there was no person on the face of this earth to come to Jesus' aid, God sent an angel to him. Just appeared out of nowhere. All of a sudden, there is an angel there. And notice the text is very clear. It says there's an angel from heaven. It isn't that he has a vision. An angel has been sent to him. An angel has been sent to be with him. For there was no one else to be with him. That should teach us how important it is to be with the others. And what they're going through. And how devastating it is to be alone in the times of our trials and our hardships and our difficulties. All the one another passages teach us of the importance of the body of Christ, the importance of each other. Those disciples failed miserably. But the Father did not fail Jesus. And sent him an angel in response to Jesus' petition. Jesus' request to be spared from suffering and death was the desperate cry of a son's heart to his father. And his father accepted it as a loving father, but without granting it. And the son accepted the father's love, but without receiving his specific request. The cup could not pass, but the father sent him an angel. The father ministered to him. The father helped him. And the scripture specifically says that angel strengthened him. Peter, your faith is going to fail. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you are converted, 
Strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. God sent an angel to strengthen Jesus. We can have an angelic ministry. And being God's representative of administering mercy, peace, comfort, reassurance of God's love and the perfection of his will. Application. Of all the things that Jesus needed at that point was his disciples. As a human, Jesus was dependent upon God and dependent upon his fellow man. So an angel is sent when his fellow man fails. How important our work of intercessory prayer can be. How seriously we should take it when people ask us to pray for them. Especially when people are vulnerable. When they tell us that they're at wit's end. When they tell us that I don't know if I can go through with this. I don't know if if I can follow the will of God in this. I'm really struggling with this decision. We shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be shocked. And if we're going to be honest, there are struggles that we have in our own lives. But we certainly shouldn't be indifferent or apathetic. We ought to pray for one another. Not close a deaf ear to those who tell us of their pain and struggles. Let's not be surprised, even by religious leaders and spiritual leaders, when they tell us of their struggles and difficulties. Christianity is not for wimps. Is it any wonder that Moses said to Joshua, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Then he goes on to say to Joshua, be very courageous in following God. How important it is when we say to people, I'll pray for you that we really pray. Let me encourage you. If someone asks you to pray, don't just simply say, I'll pray for you. If at all possible, pray for them at that moment. Stop wherever you are, whatever you're doing. If somebody asks you to pray for them, pray then. Pray on the phone. And if you're in the public place, whatever, just step to the side and pray with somebody so you don't forget. And so they know that you are praying for them. Continue to pray. Assure them when you see them later that you have been praying for them and you continue to pray for them. We're going to have an opportunity on Wednesday nights. We've had the opportunity in the past. We still have the opportunity to come and among many things, pray for one another. The more vulnerable we will be, the more valuable will be the process. Just like 
Jesus who had an inner three. You may not feel comfortable just blurting out some great need to the entire group, but I hope that in periods of time, as you get to know people better, as you pray with people, as you develop a relationship with people, you will find certain ones that you're going to feel comfortable with and say, you know, I really struggle in this area. I could really use your help because I need God's help. It only takes one. Jesus prayed and that's all was needed. But in the will of God, you see, the way he answers prayer is through others. The way that he was going to be strengthened was through others. And when there was no other human being, then it was an angel. But God works through people. So, let us come together to pray. We can be a blessing to others. We can be an encouragement to others. We can be an example to others. And we can receive help from others. I pray. And I mean that literally. I pray. I am praying that we would become more of a praying people. And when I say that, I say it not in a judgmental way. I'm saying it, first of all, in a personal way. I've been really trying to work on my prayer life. I want it to be more meaningful. I want it to be more valuable. I want it to be more helpful. I want to see us overcome hardships, difficulties, misery. Let's be a praying people. There's much to pray for. But let's start with praying for one another. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would help us. Give us tender hearts. Give us real compassion. Lord, subdue our egos, our pride, our self-centeredness and selfishness. Lord, may we be able to take our eyes off ourselves and place them on others. May we see the needs that are around us. May we be responsive to people's hurts. May they be comfortable in our midst to share their struggles, knowing that we're not going to gossip, knowing that we're not going to condemn, and knowing that we're not going to be indifferent. Lord, may we be safe havens for our brothers and sisters in Christ. May we be trustworthy. And Lord, may we be faithful in praying for one another, encouraging one another, holding one another up. Oh Lord, teach us how to pray. May our prayers be more meaningful. And oh Lord, may we experience the peace, the calm, the comfort, 
the strength that we need as we pray. Help us to overcome the temptations. Help us to be resilient and steadfast. Lord, we just simply need your help. In Jesus' name, amen.